What up, Zach? Hey, Coop. Afternoon. Good afternoon. Good evening. It's good to see you. Good night. How are you? Those are some of our favorite words to say to each other. Sweet dreams, pumpkin. (laughs) Anyway, Cooper, we have a story to tell. We do. And it's from when we worked not together, but in close proximity. Yes. I was above you. And I was below you. Not in power. We were in actually different offices. Different offices. But my office's location was conveniently located directly above your offices. And also conveniently in my office was the only color printer in the building. In the building. So naturally, I was very quick to offer my services to my boss of fetching things from the colored printer. And you would be gone for a while. I mean, a responsible amount of time. I just yeah. I walked slowly as to not crumple the papers. Right. right. I mean, the, the classic, the dog ate my homework, the classic. I mean, I just was being careful because I didn't want to crumple your papers. I know. And he was grateful. I'm sure he was. But Zach, that led to some interesting interactions between you and I. It really did. And and it's really, it's just a testament to our generation and the way we communicate. Yeah. Just face to face is out, man. It's who needs it? Who needs to talk? I wish we could just erect a wall in between us. I do too. I just love talking to you through not face to face ways. Uh, I love closing my eyes and speaking to you. That's my favorite way we talk. Really pillow talk. Yeah, that's actually a good one. Because I can't see you. But I can hear your sweet voice. Thank you. Thank you. So anyway, what kind of what was this new mode of communication? So I quickly realized that I had access to you in a way that you did not have access to me. Right. And that was through the printer. Exactly. And so after a couple trips down there of printing things in color, going and taking them up, I had an epiphany, if you will. Okay. Will you? Yeah. Okay. And I thought that I have access to print things out. And send them to Zach Funderburg mm-hmm. and just through the name, someone will pull it off the printer and see that it has his name on it right. and they'll give it to him. Yeah. So I began, I began to type different messages or find funny images, all appropriate, of course, in yeah. good taste. Yeah. And I would just, I would sign them from the man upstairs and no one knew who it was. And I just would print them out and they would lay on the printer until they were to be found. And by people someone. would like walk into the office and be like, Hey Zach, this is for you. It's on the printer. And I look at it and it's like, it's like a riddle. It's like a puzzle I'd have to figure out. <laughs> yes. And I'm like sitting there for way too long. Yeah. And I and I figure it out. And then at the bottom, it's like the man upstairs. And I was like, oh, good old Coop. <laughs> yes. And I actually started a file like on my desk. So yeah. I had like all these files with like real things that I had to do and like right. parts of the job. And we, then well, you had one. an important job. I had a fun job. And there was a there was a file in between them all that just said the man upstairs. And so many people would walk in and be like, what's the man upstairs? I'm like, I'm sorry. I, I can't tell you. I'm sworn to secret. Top secret. But that was so like, that was so fun. I would, I would print off some pop culture references right. or collages. I remember making a few collages. Yeah. I had, I had some extra time. You had too much extra at time. At my job. You did. So I just want to thank DBU for funding <laughs> this like, with their printer paper, their printer ink yeah, and my that. work hours. I did not think about that. Part. Yeah. Anyway. That was fun. It was it was a, it was an awesome time, and I'm glad we have some great memories. And that folder, I think, will forever live in infamy. Welcome to the Next Generation Leader Podcast, where we believe great leaders are listeners, especially their inner youth. Good leaders learn from their successes and mistakes, but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them. I'm your host Zach Funderburg here with my co-host Coop McCullough, aka the Man Upstairs. Welcome. It's good to see you. It's good to see you as well, Zach. Even though I prefer not seeing you. What's funny is you're the Man Upstairs, but this episode is with the lady from down. Under. I love what you did there. Thank you. That was amazing. Thank you. I we should you should put a clap track <laughs> after that joke. I, I that was will. good. So this is Paris Cutler. 
Paris is from Australia. If you didn't get the reference down under she, so it's really funny. I was interviewing her and I was like, I knew she had like some, some like fame. She had a TV show. We'll get into that. But I did not realize how well known and how famous she was until about halfway through the interview. Really? And I was like, wow, you're well known. This lady is very well known in Australia and very famous, but I'll tell you how she got famous. Yeah. Tell me. She was working. uh, She graduated from college, from university, as we are about to. And she starts working and working and realizes that the work is just not for her. Mm -hmm. And so she sees this cake shop that had been run down. She told me that people in Australia don't like cake. She's like, they just don't love cake, which I think is wrong. That confuses me. It's un-American. Yeah. Which makes makes sense. sense. And so she buys this cake shop. She takes it over. She flips it and she starts running it like a champ. Cake becomes popular. She, to be fair though, she had an easy thing to sell. She really did. She she awoke. (laughs) Cake's amazing. Yeah. She allowed, she allowed the Australian population to awaken to the substance that is cake. So thank you. You're welcome, Australia, yeah. for Paris's sacrifice. Yeah. Anyway, so it's around the same time that in the in the States that uh, the show Cake Boss was really taking yeah. off. And so an Australian TV network goes to Paris and says, this show is amazing. We need we want to do one with your shop in Australia. If you don't do it, someone else will and you will not be famous. They will. And so Ooh. she said, uh, okay, I'll do it. And that's a huge part. I'm not going to tell you like the advice that she gave right there, but that was my favorite part of the interview Yeah, of making decisions. Oh, so, so good. So she does this uh, TV show and really it turns her, uh, I can't get too much. Into right, the story. That's okay, that's okay. story. Anyway, she gets really famous and, and they want her to do more, but she ends up walking away yeah. because she had, she and you'll hear why her values. You'll hear you, why. You'll hear why. And uh, so then she moves on, keeps running her cake shop. But now she's a leadership consultant in Blue Ocean Strategy. Uh, really, what Blue Ocean Strategy is, you have blue oceans and red oceans. Red oceans is, is how we'd say shark infested. Okay. Where it's like a it's like a culture and environment where there's a lot of people running for the same goal. And Blue Ocean Strategy is for say the entrepreneurs say, hey, there's an opportunity out here in the blue ocean, and gotcha. we're going to go for it. Finding a new niche. Finding a of. new niche. Yeah. And so this is I love this interview because. Cause it's so just real. It's so just so much humility from her. Like, yeah. this is where I met. She talks up. a lot about her life experience and she's where willing she to share from her. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. And, and like, I think a lot of entrepreneurs have this idea of like, it's going to be great. One day I'm going to be Mark Cuban. One day yeah. I'm going to be Mark Zuckerberg. But it's like, you got to grind to get there. And your name has to be Mark. And your name does have to be Mark. <laughs> and so Paris just gives us the, the nuts and bolts of entrepreneurship. And it's not all it's cracked up to be but it's so fun and so exciting and she did it so well. And there's so much just practical advice in here. So without further ado, here she is from down under Paris Kettler. Well, Paris, thank you so much for being with us. I'm, I'm excited. We're so far away. First of all, what's the weather like in Australia this morning? You know, I hate to tell you this, but it's absolutely glorious. Oh. I mean, one of the things about Australia is it's just amazing. It's supposed to be autumn here. I've got water views. The sun is glistening and bouncing off the water. It's a perfect day. Wow. Perfect I mean, day. you couldn't have painted a better picture of making <laughs> me want to just fly out to Australia <laughs> right now. But uh, kind of introduce yourself. Start out, who are you? How did you get to where you are? Kind of tell your story. Sure, sure. My name is Paris Cutler. I turned uh, 47 a week ago. And the reason I say that is because when I started off, entrepreneurship was not a thing. So when I was like younger and I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur from about six or seven, there wasn't really a word for it. It was just like, do you want to own a grocery shop? 
Mm. Like, that, you know, it was just that kind of feeling. So I always was a born entrepreneur and was always doing my little deals and my little businesses, but I never thought of it as a career. Mm. And I went into stockbroking uh, originally because I didn't come from a family of business people. And I was a trader for a little while. I met a huge amount of entrepreneurs and I absolutely loved it. But back in the day, you really needed a whack of capital to set up as an entrepreneur. And as a woman, it was even more challenging. So I went for that, did a law degree, but it was still calling me, still calling me. Um, And I wasn't a natural entrepreneur in the sense that back then it was about coming up with an invention. You had to kind of invent something like the liquid paper lady and the guy that invented the toggles for the end of the shoelaces. And because entrepreneurs weren't profiled like they are today, so there was basically like Sir Richard Branson, Anita Brodick, a couple of others, that was it. Um, I didn't have many options, but then I got on the idea of maybe corporatizing an industry or developing an industry that everybody else had ignored and creating. It's very familiar for Americans, but for Australians, it was like a whacked out idea to create a brand and not a business. So for you guys now, the younger generation, that's like second nation. Yeah, let's create a brand and let's do the business stuff later. Back then it was unheard of. It's called a business with no legs. That's what they called it. All brands, no business. And it's actually dangerous to do it that way. But I found a little cake shop. Everyone had ignored it. Cakes are now like mainstream. You wouldn't think of it. But back then in Australia, people hated the idea of cakes. And I That's crazy. Yeah, I know. They were like, cakes are horrible, thick, horrible icing. But we had fondant icing. We didn't have bundle cream. And so these poor deprived Australians were just like, no, (laughs) no cakes, please. It was a very sad story. But I can see what Martha Stewart was doing in the States. I was totally inspired. She was a total icon of mine. And I bought a tiny little cake shop with the idea that I was going to corporatize it. That's the only word I had back then. But basically take it mainstream, build a huge big brand around it, And instead of treating it like a food product, I treated it like a fashion product. That's a blue ocean strategy. So I'm a big fan of blue ocean strategy, as you know, and that's my natural talent. So blue ocean strategy in a nutshell is what entrepreneurs have been doing for a thousand years, but some very, very clever people came up with an academic term to describe it. And it's basically looking at a crowded industry and developing new markets for underserved consumers. So Netflix is a great example of Blue Ocean. Cirque du Soleil is a great example of Blue Ocean. Um, And what I did with my little cake shop was I could see underserved consumers in the fashion world that cakes would be this unbelievable accessory. I could see the the burgeoning of people wanting to have great photographs taken of themselves for branding purposes. What better way than a cake creates a photo opportunity? Why not make that cake a $3,000 cake? So I just went right into the, I reversed the whole thing. And instead of like trying to go lower on price, I actually went higher on price. And I said, I marketed myself as having, you know, the most expensive cakes in Australia. That right. was my marketing pitch. Wow. And everyone was like, wow, that's whacked out, man. Like, this is going to fail. <laughs> yeah. That is so <laughs> um, funny. <laughs> but then you combine that with a lot of celebrity endorsements. So with my little cake shop, the cakes were amazing. We managed to get like Celine Dion, Rihanna, Lady Gaga, Katy Perry, like wow. John Travolta, all these people, Nicole Kidman were our clients. Um, and from there it grew. But the big revenue generator ended up being the school. So an education teaching people to make cakes. And that ended up becoming my really huge business, which turned it into a 
um, multi-seven-figure business. And I then went on to publish five books. And in the end, I had my own TV show and the whole kind of like designer cake story, but for Australia. So that's who I am in Australia. That's amazing. I mean, an incredible story, an entrepreneur. That's what we want to talk about. Entrepreneurship. Kind of talk about the reality TV show for a little bit. I've seen a couple clips. It looked so fun. All right. What what was kind of that process? What did that look like? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Like, I I don't know how to talk about this. Do you want me to be really brutally honest? Of course. Brutal. Brutal. Part part of it was a great idea and part of it was a huge mistake in business. Mm. I would probably cite it as one of the greatest mistakes I made in business. Okay. And we're getting really in deep really early in this interview, but you bring it up. Listen, uh, my instinct, this is, uh, there's a couple of lessons in this whole thing, right? So reality TV had just taken off and I watched, was watching Cake Boss in America and that right. guy just went nuts. Like women were throwing their underpants at that guy. Like the whole thing had just gone insane. Right. Uh, and, I, and I was watching this from afar just thinking, that's crazy. And the guy can't even decorate cakes. I mean, that's from my point of view, you know, totally. we, an expert point of view. And I just thought, gosh, you know, no, that is not for me because I'm a high end brand. I promoted myself as a luxury product. There was no way I was going to go down that route. However, um, in Australia, obviously the networks here caught onto it and they kept suing me because we were the top, we were number one national brands and we had a really big reputation in Europe and they could see the potential and they kept approaching and I kept saying, no, my gut instinct was no. Yeah. And then they, then I made a decision to say yes. And that decision was based on fear and ego because they came to me and said, listen, we're going to make someone famous. If it's not going to be you and you don't say yes, we're making another cake shop famous. Mm. And I, and I, I caved and it was fear. I got to admit to you, it was fear. I just, I couldn't stand the thought of another cake shop having that advantage, market advantage. And so I I signed up all these contracts and, you know, protect the brands and all of this type of stuff. And that was all great. And I felt kind of protected. And then the whole thing for like 10 weeks of filming just turned into an absolute horror show. I mean, how much business do you get when you have to shut down all your kitchens? And, you know, I was a CEO, I was a leader. And then all of a sudden I was treated as talent. You know, Mm -hmm. can you just walk through the room again, Paris? Can you just repeat that, Paris? Can you just, you know, flick your hair back? and wear these types of clothes. I mean, reality TV is staged, right? The whole thing is staged. 100%. So they kept breaking uh, agreements in the contract and I could feel that our brand was really in jeopardy. I've never felt so really pressured in all my life. So they kept coming to me and saying things like, can you please create drama in the show and all of Mm. this? And I knew where it was going. Uh, Do you have any potential bridezillas coming in at any (laughs) moment? And I just thought, oh my God, this is terrible. So I decided to throw myself under the bus. I had a meeting with the staff and I said, they're either going to try and create conflict in the kitchen between you guys. They're going to try and shame a customer or whatever they're going to do, but they're going to try and create drama. Let's take control of that and I'll be the baddie. So I'll come in and shout at you guys and, you know, what's the time and why this. So we had a pact, an agreement. This is where I was not thinking logically. And it was great. That was fine. The show was absolutely brilliant. I actually won an Astro Award for it, which is a big TV Come award on. in Australia for like greatest presenter. And all of these people came to me and were like, we want you on a celebrity apprentice. You're amazing. You know what we want me here. Hey, here's the catch. As the nasty girl. Because 
what it did was it actually destroyed my personal brand. Right. And after that show came out, I had huge fame. And, you know, it was shown in 30 countries around the world and, you know, BBC picked it up and all of this type of stuff. But my actual business was really damaged. And while the cake sales went through the roof, the actual profitable part of my business, the school, I lost 20 to 30% of my students. Mm-hmm. They thought, why am I going to go to a school with this nasty character? Right. So it was a very, very bad mistake. And there's a few lessons in that. First of all, ego and fear is not the place to be making decisions. Right. Second of all, not all good P- all PR is good PR. Don't ever let anybody tell you that. I mean, you have to be masterful to manage that kind of negativity. Mm-hmm. I wasn't in control. The third thing is don't do business with someone who's not the decision maker. So I did the, biz- the deal, the contract with the production company, but the reason that I got the runarounds was because the network was called calling all the shots. Right. And the other lesson that I learned was don't do business with a business you know nothing, an industry that you know nothing about. I didn't understand TV. I didn't understand how that industry worked. They did. And so at the end of all of that, I could have made millions and millions of dollars out of the TV show and I made not one cent. Really? Because I didn't understand where the asset lay in TV. So the asset in television lies in the production rates. So BBC Worldwide got the production rates and they sold them to 30 countries around the world and made right. a lot of money. Paris Cutler walked away with a big, huge debt. Wow. That's fascinating. So, I mean, that's me just really, I think it's really, really tempting for CEOs, leaders, entrepreneurs to paint ourselves like these major heroes, like, yeah, we're the hero in our own story. And it it feels like we're untouchable. When I made those really poor decisions, I was at the top of my game. Mm -hmm. And... I made a series of really dastardly errors that I then spent quite a while correcting, but we can only learn from other people's mistakes. And that's right. why I wanted to share them with you. I learned right. a huge amount. Well, I appreciate business. it. And that's really our mission. One of our mission statements with, uh, with the next generation leader podcast is that good leaders learn from their successes and mistakes, but great leaders learn from the successes and mistakes of those who go before them. And so, so thank you for sharing that with us. And, and I want to learn from that, but I want to go back to a part you said about making decisions based off fear and ego. What, mm. what did that look like for you? Cause I mean, fear and ego are both things that drive people. And if someone is afraid of something, they're afraid of losing, you're afraid of another mm. cake cake shop, taking the fame that should be yours. And then the ego of saying that should be mine. It's going to create something that, that isn't the product you want to put out, but you're almost so blinded by the fear and ego that you, you aren't able to see the outcome. So as the leader, as the entrepreneur in the, in the equation, how do you look past the fear and ego or or get above Mm. the trees, if you will, and you can kind of see what's coming rather than allowing the fear and ego to take, take control of your decision-making. Okay. Yeah. So this is a question I love to answer and very, very few people ask me. And um, it's probably the most important thing I have to talk about because I have been caught up. I've also stepped away from my integrity at times in my career as well. I mean, in a very small way, we all step away from our integrity at some point, but I'm the type of person that really analyzes, why did I do that? You know, you're an entrepreneur, you can make money at doing whatever you want to do. Why, why would you need to do that? So this is my answer. I've given it a lot of thought and I certainly teach it to my clients. When my business was thriving, I was operating on a set of, I have a deep faith and spirituality myself. That's irrelevant for this conversation, but it does mean that I had a very profound set of values and the way I operated. 
business is this magic mix. They like to make it feel like it's all Siri, but you're dealing with people, your staff are people, your customers are people. So it's about community, right? Running a mm. business is about community. Totally. And community is formed on a shared set of values and your business and you as a leader impart your values into your business. Mm. Now I did that. And when I did that, naturally my business was thriving, but what I never did was I never created a formal framework of decision-making based on my principles and values. Mm. I just kind of led from the gut. You know how they always saying like, do it by the gut. But when you have a formal set of values for decision-making, I would have continued to say no to that Mm. for, so when you sit down and say, how does this business operate? How do I as a leader make values, uh, value-based decisions, blah, 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 blah. And that's in a document. When you're really overwhelmed with fear or when your ego is really getting the better of you, you say, let's go back to a, my framework for making decisions based on who I really am, what I truly believe in, what the values of this company are and what my company is about. If I'd done, if I'd done that, the answer would have been no. Right. So this conversation for entrepreneurs, would you say that creating that framework for decision-making would be Mm. step number one of being an entrepreneur? Yeah. And so everyone always asks me, so what, what are values? Well, you know, the marketing department thinks values are things that you come up with so that your customers will buy your product or service. That is not what values are. Values are the values of the founder or the entrepreneur that are embedded in the business. Mm -hmm. They become the DNA fabric of the business. So long after you are gone, your ghost will haunt the hallways of your business. Mm. And it will haunt the hallways of your business in terms of of your story and the values. So, you know, when you walk into a really strong company, I've got goosebumps now and you can feel, you can feel it like all the staff, they're imbued with these values. They've got it. It's in their language. It's in their design. It's in their service to their customer. That is from the values of the founder. Right. So these are not made up values for the marketing department. These are your values, Zach, as a leader and entrepreneur. These were my values. Mm. I actually compromised my own values in saying yes to do that TV show. Right. What, what kind of was the process there? You say you compromised your integrity in doing the D- TV show. Was it just going against what you probably should have done and basing a decision off fear and ego that led you to that? Or what would, what would you say by stepping away Not- from your values? Okay, so my values are like um, kindness, integrity, collaboration, education, all of these values, which I know quite strongly, faith, spirituality, all of that. By doing the TV show, I would be risking integrity. I mean, that's a no-brainer because I'm actually not in control of the outcome. So that's a risk. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a no. Yeah. So yeah. So just filtering your decision making through your framework or or your values rather yeah. than your fear and ego. I think that's yeah. so good. That's amazing. Yeah. And that's something that people don't really think about because so many entrepreneurs, you, you see the entrepreneur as just the go getter. They're gonna almost jump at anything that that comes mm-hmm. their way and any opportunity that comes their way. And so I think that framework is so important for an entrepreneur to slow down and say, no, this doesn't go with my values. This actually goes against my values. And so I'm not going to choose to do it, even though it looks enticing, even though my ego is pushing me that way, even though they're driving me into fear, it's not smart to go that way. Would you agree with that? Yes. And this is the thing about values. Someone with different values. So I work with clients and their values are success, achievement, all this stuff could have taken the negativity out of that 
TV show and turned it around and become a TV star and set up many more businesses. Right. That TV show was wrong for me, not wrong for someone else. Mm. But because my values are different to someone else, it was wrong for me. Right. And, and this is the very personal thing about business that every business and every leader has their own journey. You can use role models along your journey, Gary V, this person, that person. I mean, I certainly do. I still do it today. I love it. Mm-hmm. You need a role model and, you know, great role models. But at the end of the day, it's your path. Right. The business is a reflection of your mind and heart. Hmm. That's so good. Can I talk That's about... the end. Sorry. So sorry. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Um, can I talk about your decision to go to leave? So you said that the TV show kind of changed your personal brand and mm-hmm. it turned you in kind of the, the baddie, the, the, someone who's going yeah. and yelling at the employees and, and people wanted to take that and run with that. And, and you said yeah. you could have, you could have gone on, you could have continued, but it wasn't right for you. So what yeah. was the, what did your decision look like to leave that, to leave the fame and run back to your values? <laughs> it looked like a huge explosion. Right. It was like this messy, apocalyptic existential crisis. Right. <laughs> and it, it, I bet it was hard. It was an absolute mess and it didn't happen in one bit. Like I recovered from that. And after the TV show, here's the thing I didn't tell you. After the TV show, I was hugely famous throughout the world. I was then set up to be a global brand. There were countries where they just loved me. It was in Australia that I had the problem because we have a different culture here. We have a tall poppy problem here, but China loved me. Like Germany, the show was shown like five times, you know, like Hmm. it was crazy. So the next step for me was to have my own like equipment range, go full Martha Stewart. Like just go full Martha Stewart. And I had the investors there. I had people interested. I had people wanting to partner with me from overseas. Like the whole thing was about to turn into hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. I thought, you know, the potential was there and I bailed. Yeah. And I'm sure people told you you were crazy. Crazy. But a few things happened. So I had a good friend die and, um, you know, I had a cyberbullying campaign during the TV show and a couple of other things. And I just fell out of love with my own business. Businesses are like a relationship. You think you're going to be in love forever. You cannot imagine not being with your business. It is your biggest lover. It's your baby. You, You love it. And when it's successful and other people love it, you're so attached to it. And then one day, just like a relationship gone wrong, you just wake up and go, I don't think I love you anymore. And it's mm. the most dreadful feeling. Right. That's, yeah, <laughs> I can't imagine. Like, I wasn't prepared for this. Like none of the books told me this could happen. Like right. you see, you see in the newspaper, like successful exit, $600 million. You see like people selling their, their, um, at their new business of like a billion dollar IPO and all this stuff. And you are imagining you're going to go out the same way. Right. You don't expect to have this huge, big, massive existential crisis and fall out of love with your business. They don't write about that. It's actually hugely common. And that is because the reason I started my business, I didn't start it with the right motivation. Hmm. That's huge. That's, that's what huge. resulted in my falling out of love with it is it no longer had any meaning for me because it was no longer aligned with who I was. So my whole goal was to be a number one national brand, a global brand, be number one, number one to win. That's what right. I wanted to do. And the reason I wanted to win was A, I loved business, but B, 
uh, you know, after being bullied at school or whatever, I wanted to be number one and to have everybody kind of worshiping me. It was purely kind of a bit of an ego thing. I mean, I, totally. I sound like a total ego tripper. Totally. Yeah. But I mean, you know, I just want to heal a lot of wounds with success. Right. And then you're number one. I mean, I always think of Tiger Woods with this, right? Because mm-hmm. I always think he just choked right at the top. Right. I mean, he was there. He was so that like absolute legend. Yeah. And, um, you know, because, I mean, there's an interesting thing that Simon Sinek says about Tiger Woods and this is what I can relate to. I feel very like Tiger is a bit of a kind of someone I can understand. And he said, um, if Tiger had just been himself, like a, you know, a bit of a douche, didn't always behave in the way that people liked him to, but very honest about who he was and right. to himself, he, he would have been fine. He would have had his own tribe and he would have been caught out for bad behavior and everyone, his tribe wouldn't have raised an eyebrow. But because he had painted himself as someone different, it was cataclysmic. And that's right. kind of what happened to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, thank you so much for, for sharing that and, and just being honest with us. I th- I've learned so much just from this part and we, we went way off there from where we were going to go, but <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love it. Uh, but I want to, I kind of want to take you back all the way to the day mm-hmm. you bought the cake shop. You said this, yeah. this cake shop, nobody had really paid attention to it. Mm-hmm. It was forgotten. Um, mm-hmm. and, and what did that process look like? Because it couldn't have been, you just walked in and you turned the place around. And it was amazing day two. How did you, how did you push through the adversity and the doubt of entrepreneurship? Right back in the beginning. Yeah. Okay. So we bought this tiny little cake shop and it was such an ugly little shop and it was so tiny that when the phone rang, you had to pass it along so people could get it. You know, there wasn't enough room. So when the customers used to come, um, only two people could fit in at a time and the others had to wait outside. Right. Um, to turn it around was really, really hard work. I think the biggest ingredient was having a vision mm. of where it was going to go to. Leadership these days, we don't talk about vision enough. Right. I, I really, I had a great leader in my life prior to becoming an entrepreneur. I've had, and I've met many great leaders. The ones that inspire me are the visionary ones. This right. is where we're going. It might be a little plastic table and just ourselves with our laptops now, but right. we're headed here. And I had the same talent of being able to get the staff really excited about that. So we were in this dingy little cake shop where there wasn't even a bathroom and we'd have to go to the local hotel to use their bathroom. And it was so bad. Yeah. And like, you know, I remember kind of Nicole King. Kidman's management team, like all standing in there with their clipboards and stuff, just like it was so embarrassing. Yeah. But because we were, I was able to imbibe that vision. And also when I was selling, I was able to imbibe that vision. You know, like Mm. you get on board now, support me now because I'm going places, like this is where I'm going, um, and get everyone excited about it. We transformed fairly quickly. But the first few years, I mean, I was just. It was on the, it was on fumes. Yeah. I love that. The vision. And then the second part of that, getting people behind your vision. And I think entrepreneurs are incredibly passionate and that passion is contagious and that's what pulls people and that's what makes it successful. So how as an entrepreneur, do you passionately communicate your vision in a way that inspires people to join and, and to push forward, forward with you? What did that look like for you? Okay. Yeah. So I did it in a very personal way, maybe because I'm female, it's a little bit different, but I'm not, everybody is, is different, right? Right. So every one of your employees and partners and investors is going to have a different trigger for why they would invest themselves in your vision. So the first step of that is finding out who everybody is, what their triggers are and what they want. 
and then making the vision custom tailored to them. Yeah. You know, if your vision is big enough, there's something in there for everyone. Yeah. So for the investors, it would be the amount of money we were going to raise and all of the product lines that we could put under a huge big brand. For a lot of my staff, it would be now like you're going to have a profile, you're going to have exposure. For others, it would be we're going to have a state-of-the-art kitchen, we're going to do this. For others, it would be I'm going to get you trained in that, you're going to be able to do videos and all of this type of stuff. So totally. everyone had a different thing. Yeah, and and I love that. Keep going. And so that really, and so the vision is kind of organic because right. they get excited about it and they're then able to add their stuff into it as well. Yeah. So, um, and that's what, I don't like it when people force their vision onto others. Yeah. Like it's some static thing. That's not how people operate it. And so it's, it's, it's really, and so the vision actually ended up being bigger, wilder than I ever hoped, right. you know, because I had all these people contributing to it. Yeah. And, and you cared about the people and you can even tell that through the story you told of walking into the room of your employees and saying, Hey, they're going to try and create drama. We know this is coming. I'm going to take it for you. And I yeah. think that's an incredible just story and example of a great leader taking the fall, not taking the fall, yeah. but like taking something that would have been a burden to your staff. It would have made your staff look like the bad guy, but instead you're like, Hey, I love you guys enough that I'm going to take this and, and it's going to create some, I mean, you probably didn't know at the time, but it kind of created something you didn't want to get to, but it, yeah. it built inspiration with your team. And, and I bet your team looked at you completely different after that conversation. Yeah, I mean, listen, that was always the type of leadership I did. So, you know, I was still mopping the floors um, yeah. twice a week, even when we were a big seven-figure business. Mm, that's amazing. So Just it, the, it really the, does work. Don't, get, uh, don't ask anyone to do anything you're not prepared to do yourself. I love that. And I think that's where a lot of leaders just miss it. They miss it. Well, Paris, I want to ask you, from an entrepreneur's perspective, what is in your business, the keys to success? What does that look like for you? I think, listen, I mean, they do such a good job of analyzing this and giving you all the things that you need as an entrepreneur. Uh, someone asked me the other day, what is your number one secret? Like, why did you succeed when so many other people didn't? And that's a really interesting question. I actually gave it some deep thought because I'm not terribly special. I'm not really bright. I'm actually not the best in business. I've never done a branding or a marketing degree. Mm. So how does this girl like create a number one brand right. with just no, <laughs> no stunning anything to, 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 to speak of? Um, visualization. Mm. I visualized it in my mind. All the celebrities I visualized before we got them, the um, winning the awards I did, I visualized before I got it. The book deals, I just visualized breezing in and getting them, like everything. I'm not talking right. law of attraction. I'm sort of talking about programming the subconscious of your mind for success and having a clear vision of what that success looks like. Mm -hmm. If you've got that, it doesn't matter. You can be the most average person in the world. You will succeed. Right. And it's even just like a belief in yourself that you can do it. Total belief. No doubt. I, I Listen, some parts of it took six, seven years, about about five years longer than I thought they would, totally. but they happened. Yeah. So just having faith, like just total belief, of course it's going to happen. I love it. You're an entrepreneur. Nothing can stop you. <laughs> we keep getting up off the mat. So Paris, there's, there's, we're in the middle of a crazy time. People are quarantined. They're not leaving their homes. It's, we're in the middle of a, a global pandemic and it's affecting everybody. It's affecting mm -hmm. all the markets. What do you have to say to the entrepreneurs out there, to the business leaders out there who are facing trials or facing crisis in their mm -hmm. business? What, what advice do you have to give to them? Okay. 
Listen, I know when um, more experienced entrepreneurs run around and say it's all about the opportunities and stuff like that, you can feel like saying just choke on it. Like right now, it's not feeling like that. Right. When I, I mean, I had a business that was directly affected by the GFC. Within the course of three weeks, 90% of my sales um, were cancelled. Um, and I was facing, I had just expanded. I had this massive new warehouse. I'd hired all this new staff. And I was probably in a position where I'd last about a month like cash flow was just drying up and it was right. really bad. Now, I won't say it wasn't scary. It was absolutely terrifying. But I have this idea that when crisis happens, real leaders emerge mm. and the GFC was the best thing that happened for my business. Right. And I'll tell you why. Because it's a baptism of fire. I was selling all these high-end cakes that like started at $1,000 and all those customers straight up. I had to pivot. And what I did was which part of my business is selling like it doesn't matter how small right. and what are the assets in my business. So the assets in my business were my people. So mm -hmm. I, you know, you, you learn what to look at and what to save. I then was able to say, what do people do during crisis? They return to home. We're going right. to see an increase in hobbies, you know, gambling, prostitution, drugs, yeah. um, home renos, all of that type of stuff. So that's when I really got my little workshop, cake decorating workshops, and I pivoted them within the course of a couple of weeks. And what emerged from that was my cake decorating school, which ended up being the largest, you know, hobbyist school in the Southern Hemisphere and ended up making millions of dollars. Hmm. And that wouldn't have happened without the GFC. Yeah. The other thing that happened during the GFC is me as a leader was born. Hmm. It's very easy to be a leader when times are good. Right. It's, you know, everybody thinks that they can do a better job than you. Totally. But when a crisis happens, no one wants your job. No one, after the GFC, no one ever questioned my leadership ever again. Right. I had legendary status. Any staff member that ever came and worked for me was told the story of, you know, what a hero I was. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it gave me a huge sense of confidence. So while I understand that right now it feels like all your skin has been ripped off, the opportunity in your future career is immense, not just for your business or future businesses, but for you as a human. Right. I love that. And I think that's really when the, the heart of the entrepreneur and the heart of the leader comes out is when there's trials. Because just like you said, nobody, everybody thinks they can do it better than you when it's going easy. But then whenever you're having yeah. to make the hard fires, you're going to, you're having to make the hard decisions. Everybody's like, man, I'm glad I'm not in that. I'm not in his shoes. Yeah. But yeah. I love that. That's the true spirit of entrepreneurship and the true spirit of leadership. Um, I love it. I, I've learned so much. Uh, Paris, I want to, there's, I mean, there's millions of questions I could <laughs> ask you. There's, there's just so many, but I kind of want, we need to land the plane here, here yeah. soon. But I just want to ask you what I love asking every one of our leaders is, is what advice would you give to your 20 year old self looking at a 20 year old now, an entrepreneur, somebody who's a go getter. And, and they think even they think they want the personal brand that's famous that everyone knows. And it might yeah. be even a little bit negative. What would you tell that person from your experiences? I think the greatest, the greatest, I've been kind of famous in Australia, not in America. It's actually kind of creepy. Mm -hmm. Like for the first little time, it's really exciting that everybody's into you, but then people start acting very strangely around you. And I actually found it very disingenuous and creepy type of feeling. Right. I wasn't into it at all. And that's when all the bad people come out, you know, mm -hmm. when you've got something that they want. Yeah. Um, so it's actually a very dangerous thing. And it's also very dangerous for the ego. The greatest feeling I've ever had is respect from my peers, respect from other entrepreneurs, being called an entrepreneur from some of the greatest entrepreneurs in the world. Mm. 
my gosh, that that is the greatest feeling. Yeah. So, I mean, it really does come back to values. I know I harp on that a lot, but Love get it. that right. If, if you've got your values right and you still want to become famous, knock yourself out. With those mm-hmm. values, you'll, you'll be okay. But to do it without that foundation, you're in dangerous territory. Ego alone will not withstand what's out there waiting for you. Mm, I mean, put that on a tweet and sell it. Golly, <laughs> that was good. Uh, I love it. Paris, thank you so much for your time. It, it's been so fun getting to know you and, and getting to talk with you. Thank you so much. Brilliant. You're welcome. 